Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Welcome everyone. We are thrilled to have Dr. Alan Marinas and Dr. Beverly Spring here today to discuss living to die and dying to live, lessons from a Musar teacher and a palliative care doctor. Dr. Alan Marinas is the founder of the Musar Institute and a leading figure in the contemporary revival of the Musar movement, a 1,100 year old Jewish personal and communal spiritual tradition that was nearly lost following the Holocaust. A filmmaker, Rhodes Scholar, an anthropologist whose doctoral research at Oxford University focused on Hindu religious pilgrimages. He reached a personal turning point in his life in 1997 that led to his exploration of modern audiences in his books, Climbing Jacob's Ladder and Everyday Holiness. To address the growing public interest in Musar, he founded the Musar Institute in 2004. He has since authored two more books, Every Day, Holy Day, and With Heart and Mind. Dr. Beverly Spring, MD, MCFP, is a physician in and former medical director of the Vancouver Home Hospice Palliative Care Service, providing support to palliative patients and their families in their homes. She's also a physician with the Vancouver General Hospital Palliative Care Program. She's a clinical assistant professor in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of British Columbia and has taught and lectured locally, nationally, and internationally. She has received the WYCA Woman of Distinction Award, the Vancouver Medical Association Osler Award, the Canadian Medical Association Honorary Membership Award, and a Government of India Award for her contribution to the eradication of smallpox. Thank you both so much for being here. And this is being co-sponsored by Mount Sinai Cemetery in addition with Valley Bait Midrash. And we are very thankful for everything Mount Sinai does for the community. So with that, I will let you two take it away. Thank you, Pam. Bev and I will share the honors today. It's really a pleasure for us to be here with you and to uh, make mention and express gratitude to two people who aren't here today, which is Rabbi Shmuley Yanklevitz, who is the uh, director of the Valley Beit Midrash who invited us to do this event, and also to Ira Mann from the um, sponsoring organization. So grateful to them and grateful to you for coming as well. This is a special form of gratitude because um, although Bev and I have been married for very close to 50 years, that will be next year, God willing, we'll have our 50th anniversary. This is the first time we have ever taught together. So uh, we hope our teaching will be beneficial to you. And we also hope that our marriage will sustain the added stress that we're putting on it by collaborating in this way like we never have before. I think we've been through other things, so I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, <clears throat> to set the context for what we want to share, I want to point out that almost everyone who grew up in the Jewish world in the latter part of the 20th century, experienced a Judaism that was virtually devoid of spirituality. The overriding concern of the Jewish community was to build strong communal institutions. And that focus on the collective 
sidelined all the traditional interest in the inner life that had been so much a part of Jewish life in prior generations and centuries. And then add to that the uh, impact of the uh, move towards affluence, materialism, assimilation, the effect of the Holocaust. And what ends up happening is that the generation that I grew up in, when I suspect, well, if you're born after the Second World War, you're part of the larger generation I'm talking about, is that we grew up in a Jewish world that was not interested in the inner life of the individual. And as a result, we were spiritual orphans. We had been orphaned from the teachers and the traditions that came before us. And as a result, so many of us in so many different ways did not feel nourished in our deepest inner lives from Jewish wellsprings. Uh, that spiritual orphanage took many forms, and one of them is involved in the topic that we're going to be addressing today, because the Jewish world of the late 20th century took its cue from the wider culture, the mainstream culture, and largely ignored and turned its back on the reality of death, very different from prior generations. And we have not liked to think about, talk about, or acknowledge death as the inevitable reality it is. And this denial of death not only renders us unprepared when the time comes for loved ones and even ourselves to pass, but it impoverishes our lives as well. And in today's session, what we're really going to focus on more than anything else is the spiritual costs that we bear for the uh, pattern of denying the reality of death. And on the other side of the ledger, the spiritual benefits that can come from embracing the inevitable end of our physical existences. And the core of our teaching today is drawn from the decades of personal experience that my co-presenter, Dr. Bev Spring, my wife, has had on the front lines as a palliative care physician. And I'll contribute what I can from my experience as a student and teacher of the Jewish spiritual tradition of Musar to frame her story. So let's turn it over to Bev for the first story she has for us today. Bev. Thank you. Um, this is a brief story about a medical student. I'd like to set the context before I proceed. We, the culture of healthcare exists within that larger culture that's in denial of death, as Alan spoke about. There's constant loss, yet we don't come to terms with the truth of that impermanence. So it's no surprise that healthcare training also doesn't encourage the acknowledgement of the reality of death. As a result, in healthcare training, we're very separated from the actual death process. To compound this lack of acknowledgement of the inevitability of death, healthcare professionals are trained and function in a system that highly values skills and doing and the fixing of things. So acknowledging that death is, is that death exists is like acknowledging that we can't fix something and feels like sometimes a professional failure. 
So as a result of these two things, the denial of death and the bias in training towards fixing, healthcare providers training does not at all prepare them for death. For example, I was called to do a palliative care consultation on a patient who had had a lengthy and complicated hospital stay with multiple myeloma, which is cancer of the blood and kidney failure. I reviewed the chart before meeting the patient and, um, and noticed that there were um, a lot of notes, very thoughtful and careful notes um, in the chart that were written by the medical student. After meeting the patient and the family, and while I was completing my consultation note, the patient actually died. I knew this because I heard the ward clerk paging the medical student to come to pronounce the death. I saw her come and after a little while, I noticed that she was hesitating at the nursing station and not going into the room. I asked her, have you ever seen the body of someone who just died? And she said, no, and then added, I'm a little bit afraid. Would you like me to go in with you, I asked. She said, yes, and then we entered the room. The family immediately embraced her, hugged her with tears and said how grateful they were to her for all that she'd done clinically in his care and how much he had loved her. They said, you laughed at his jokes and you really cared about him. Her own fears of death and dying and bodies almost robbed her and them of this beautiful opportunity for emotional closure. Sometimes when I'm teaching students and learners, I ask them to write for five minutes on the worst case scenario of how they will die, and then five minutes on their ideal death. Some interesting concepts and things always come up. First, although death is inevitable, it's astonishing how few of us have really considered our own deaths. Secondly, though we may imagine how we might die, the truth is we actually don't know the circumstances of our death, how, when, where, whether it will be in hospital, at home, in nature, alone, with family, <clears throat> in our sleep, suddenly, or from a chronic illness. And thirdly, considering the differences between the worst and best case scenarios we'd imagined for our death may be instructive for how we might wanna be living our lives right now. Although we don't actually know the circumstances of our own death, we do know the certainty of our death and could have that certainty inform and guide our living. I forgot to unmute. I, I sometimes joke, you know, in the old days when we meet a new person, we, used, we would say, hello. Now we say, you're on mute. Um, so we all know we're gonna die and yet we live as if it's it'll never happen to us and we're like the man who was listening to the rabbi giving his yom kippur sermon who was pounding on the table and he was calling to the community and saying wake up every single person in this congregation myself included will die and everyone around except this one man was shocked and shaken by the rabbi's words, but this one man had a big, broad smile on his face, 
and seeing this the rabbi said to him sir why are you so amused aren't you afraid of dying like everyone else in this congregation and the man shrugged his shoulders and said actually i'm not from this congregation i'm only here visiting my sister so he was wrong of course it's going to sound hard but death is the fate that awaits all of us and as bev said unknown time unknown place unknown circumstances but as we read in Pirkei Avot, that Jewish book of primal wisdom, which actually the translation, the accurate translation of the title Pirkei Avot means chapters of first principles. In the fourth chapter, it says, Rabbi Levitas of Yavna said, be very, very humble in spirit for the anticipated end of the mortal human is worms. Uncomfortable thought very uncomfortable it's but is it not true who can say it's not true and so we have to wonder what impact it has on our lives to live as if death was somehow optional and not the certainty we know at least intellectually that it is and in contrast what impact would it have on a life to be really and truly and fully embracing the reality of the fact that this is a temporary temporary existence and it has an end point. What will come of that if we take that into consciousness and into our lives? And so I'm going to again invite Bev to tell another story from her experience in palliative care on living as if we would never die. Howard was a very vital 50-year-old man with a wife and two teenage children. He was a respected lawyer, a long-distance biker, a hiker, a skier, an almost never-beaten Scrabble player. He did everything in his life with passion and with excellence. He was diagnosed with kidney cancer only five months before his death. In the last six weeks of his life, he frequently expressed with some bitterness how much he felt cheated of his life, how much he regretted the loss of his activities and the dreams he had for his future. He held onto them with all his might. He walked downstairs to sit on the outdoor deck with, with his family when it seemed impossible that he could do that. He roused himself with sheer will to continue to dictate memos and receive and reply to emails, making sure that all his business responsibilities continue to be well taken care of. His wife and I talked about the possibility of him dying with all this anger, as he repeatedly referred to a food poster he'd seen at the cancer center in Vancouver. He described how he'd eaten all those damn recommended foods and look what had happened to him. This was him trying to live as he always had with masterful doing as his life's priority. Exactly one week before he died, I came to visit and he reported to his wife and me. I woke up this morning thinking about the nine things that needed doing. I began to prioritize them. Then I thought, what really needs doing? Nothing. Who needs to do it? No one. I feel such, such, and then a long pause as he looked for the word, peacefulness. Yes, that's the perfect word. 
I've never felt such peace before. In that moment, Howard came to appreciate his being that lay behind his doing with nothing in particular to do and nowhere in particular to go. He went deeper than his particular situation to his opened heart, to his soul. It was a luminous moment. I got to know him beyond his doing and activity and beyond mine to feel his deepest peace and beauty, his soul, and therefore mine. It was an honor to be in his presence. Living in denial of death means that we're living in a world built on a faulty foundation. The result is that our, our lives will then be to a degree faulty as well. The plans we make, the activities we engage in, the priorities we set, and many other aspects of our lives will change drastically depending on whether death is or is not part of the picture of life that we draw for ourselves. But when Howard accepted the reality of death in his formulation for living, his story is transformed and he waters the seeds of his own wisdom. He was then freed to, to go deeper to that place, place, sorry, place of peace, as he called it, to an opened heart. So Howard's experience that Bev has shared helps us understand the teaching that is succinctly delivered in the book of Ecclesiastes or Kohelet in Hebrew, which says, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, for that is the end of all people. The living should take this to heart. The living should take this to heart. And we, the living, when we do take this to heart, that this is the end we are all headed towards, then, as Bev was saying, everything shifts. And this too is re reflected in Ecclesiastes, which says in another place, the wise person has eyes in their head, but the fool walks in darkness, yet one fate overcomes them both. And we can infer that the second half of the verse is meant to explain the first half. What makes a person wise is seeing and acknowledging their ultimate faith, while the fool lives as if death does not exist. Now, it's a bit harsh to call someone who doesn't factor death into their living a fool, because I think it's very understandable that we would want to live as if we would never die, because life can be so delicious, and connection to other people so sweet, and pleasure so delectable, and creativity so fulfilling, and so on. We don't want to admit that our loved ones will one day leave us behind unless, of course, we die first and leave them behind. Accepting the fact of death is not meant to lead us away from living life to the fullest. In fact, the Torah commands us in no uncertain terms to be people who choose life. The verse says, I've put before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life if you and your offspring would live. And we find that idea of choosing life in another one of Bev's stories, which again, I'll invite her to share with us. Thank you. Our culture, again, finds comfort in control and predictability in all things, 
especially when it's related to illness and trying to prevent death. I don't know if you do, but I often read obituaries and it's frequently that someone is referred to having had a courageous battle with cancer. As an alternative to a battle, the truth of our inability to control all things in dying could be embraced as an investigative way of living. Without preconceived certainties, the experience may become more responsive and therefore more effective. This could be seen also as making space for listening and for faith. My example is about how our need for control and preventing death can actually get in the way of life and living. Michael was a 21-year-old diagnosed three years before we met with cancer of his tongue. He initially had surgery and radiation and did well for two years. Then he was diagnosed with disease recurrence with spread of the cancer to his lungs, his kidneys, his liver, bones, soft tissue, and his skin. He then had seven cycles of chemotherapy and a month after the chemo, a CT scan showed that his disease had again progressed. He had a very well-informed and devoted family. When the Vancouver oncologist suggested that there was a phase two trial at the Cancer Center in Toronto, the entire family, his three siblings, the patient and the parents, moved into a suite at a Toronto hotel where they would spend a month for the trial. I met them two days before this trip and four months before he died. The day after they arrived in Toronto, a frantic sister called me. He's anxious, acting out, angry and paranoid, she said. Could it be the medications that you started him on two days ago? I called the patient and felt instantly relieved. He explained that he felt far from home and his supports and his girlfriend whom he'd proposed to the day before leaving Vancouver. He felt that everyone, the oncologist, his family, with every good intention had pressured in him into this decision. He felt very uncertain about a choice that had a 5% response rate and required weekly biopsies of his scalp lesion, which were tender. He wasn't sure he really wanted it, but he'd been made to feel like it was this or death with no other possibilities and no hope, he said. Once he arrived in Toronto, he told me, he realized this treatment did not represent all or nothing. His symptoms were well controlled. He had confidence in his complementary therapies and he was looking forward to his upcoming wedding. He said, I'm not afraid of this disease or of dying. I just want to do it on my own terms. I was stunned by his clarity. Our feelings of helplessness and fear of death turn into doing and planning. In Michael's case, he had to break through the desperation to save him in order that his own lack of fear of dying and his wisdom and clarity about his living could come through. What we have to distinguish especially if we want to number ourselves among the wise, is that choosing life as Michael did does not equate with denying death. That is a clear and powerful lesson. And now I'd like to bring some of the concepts and language 
of the Jewish spiritual tradition of Musar into the picture to help us do what Ecclesiastes calls on us to do, which is to be wise by taking these lessons that Bev has brought us to heart. So they're not just her stories and they're not just our information, but they actually make us wiser by entering our hearts. We touched earlier on the notion that living in denial of death means making choices and building a life on a faulty foundation. And from one perspective, it just makes sense. It's just sensible to factor all the realities into the planning we do for our lives. It's common sense and rational. Of course, we're going to die. Let's make sure we have a will and whatever is very pra practical and pragmatic. But the impact of building life on that, that faulty foundation hits us somewhere else as well. And once I've explained this Musser concept, we'll be equipped with another lens through which to understand the lessons embedded in Bev's stories. Just by way of brief background, in case you're not very familiar with the tradition of Musser, because as I said, being a generation of spiritual orphans, we may be very unfamiliar with our own spiritual traditions. And the book of Proverbs, which is you know, a major book of the Torah, actually begins with a mention of Musar. The two opening verses of Proverbs read, these are the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and Musar. That's where it you know, takes some, some anchoring right in the Bible. But as a spiritual tradition, it dates from around the 900s. And that means we have about 1,100 years of tradition development to draw on. Sometimes I like to say I have an 1,100-year-old R&D department. And we can apply those lessons to our own lives. And in particular, in the 19th century, there was a phenomenon called the Musar movement, which really elaborated and built up what we have inherited as this spiritual tradition. The Musser teachers adapted a concept that existed in another context, but they adapted it and it's called Timtum Halev. Now, Lev in Hebrew means heart and Timtum means blocked or stopped up. Timtum Halev describes the condition in which the spiritual heart is walled off. It's no longer sensitive or supple. And Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, who was the founder of the 19th century Musar movement in Eastern Europe, he said that Musar is the Torah's antidote to Timtum Halev. The history of the Musar movement was written by a man named Rabbi Dov Katz, and he published actually a five volume set called, appropriately enough, the Musar movement. It hasn't all been translated into English. Hebrew, Tenuat HaMusar. And he says there's something about this condition of Timtum Halev, the stopped up heart that's relevant to our subject today. And he writes, but what can be done at present when we're submerged both inwardly and outwardly in the vanities of worldly preoccupations, when the heart is stopped up and hard as rock? Can a weak stimulus make an impression on hard rock? 
He attributes this inner blockage of the heart to our being submerged both inwardly and outwardly in the vanities of worldly preoccupations. This is the, this is the problem. This is the source of the issue. And he was writing in pre-World War II Europe. And any vanities of worldly preoccupations he would have seen in his time would pale in comparison to the vanities of worldly preoccupations that preoccupy our modern materialistic and hedonistic world. And the preeminent symbol of our modern world, which is the internet, is a virtual playground of vanity and worldly preoccupations. And then Rabbi Katz zeroes in and says something very relevant to our subject today. He immediately adds, even the recalling of the day of death is no deterrent in our time. We don't tremble at the day of death, even though we mention it by word of mouth. Why don't we tremble at the thought of the day of death? And the answer lies in the notion of Tim Tum Halev. Any word or act that we do that is false or unwise the Muster teachers tell us, it leaves a film or a residue on our hearts. And as we multiply those acts, so the residue accumulates until it comes to the point that our hearts are so stopped up that we don't feel anything anymore. And instead of being connected to truth, our lives are oriented to things that are false, even damaging. And when we take it deeply into our hearts that every second that ticks by brings us a step closer to the grave, that awareness should penetrate so deeply and so powerfully that it causes us to reevaluate our lives. But if we are living lives that are so distracted by false or unimportant priorities, then our hearts will be so insensitive that we're not touched by the shakeup this recollection should cause. That's what Rabbi Katz is pointing to. And so the question is, what can we do to soften our hearts and to get back in touch with the true reality of life and spirit? And Rabbi Eliyahu Dessler, who was a great Musser teacher, who died only in 1954, he explains, it's impossible to sow a field unless it has first been plowed. Similarly, blockage in our heart prevents spiritual feelings from penetrating it. The hard peel surrounding the heart must first be pierced. Only then can spiritual insights be sown, and only then can fruit be expected to grow in the form of changed attitudes. He goes on, how can the hard soil of the heart be plowed with strong emotional upheaval? This can come from sudden disaster or from great joy when a person is in a state of excitement for whatever reason their heart opens. And I think we all know from our own experience that sudden emotional shocks, whether positive or negative, crack open our hearts. And Bev has an experience to share on this point. Dev, back to you. Thank you. Um, well, we heard in the cases I described of Howard 
suddenly describing a feeling he'd never had before of peacefulness and Michael breaking through the desperation of those around him to save him, choosing what mattered for his living. Both of those cases, hearts opening. I've also witnessed the cracking open of the heart when someone has lost a beloved or when someone's told that their chemo is no longer effective and the focus of care is on comfort now and quality of life. Surprisingly, in these cases, the tenderized hearts offer comfort, a spaciousness and joy even in the midst of their loss and sadness. For others, family and caregivers, to witness that opening of the heart becomes transformative for us too we experience beyond the particular situations and the stories of that person to the place where we're interconnected, where the distinction between who's a caregiver and a care receiver is blurred. We see that we're all in this together from opened heart to opened heart. From Bev seems to have frozen and it had nothing to do with me, but, um... Uh, I can finish up. She was right at the end of her section. We see that we're all in this together from open heart to open heart, from soul to soul. You can tell we've been married. We're finishing each other's sentences. Am I still frozen? No, you're doing very, you're nice and warm. You've come back to life. Thank you. We, we're not dealing with resurrection on this talk, but there you've just seen an example of it. Okay, the, I'm taking over anyway. The teachers in the Musar movement did not think we needed to wait for those sorts of experiences to come our way on their own. And they would assign practices that were meant to have this effect. And if you've been in classes of mine or read things that I've written, you'll know that I have a very favorite story about a group of Musar students who actually took a dead fish and tied a string around its tail and they hung it from the ceiling. And it's a whole story that has a, a different point to it. But what were they doing? They were creating a practice in order to watch something go through the death process, watch, watch the flesh decay, and really to get a direct sensory experience, which as you can imagine with a rotting fish, they were successful at. But that's what Rabbi Dessler is talking about, that idea of bringing a strong experience into your, your, your direct sensory receptivity. And, but the Musser teachers, it happens in life by itself, that cracks us open. But the Musser teachers wanted to give us practices like that in order to bring the reality of death into consciousness because that's been long recognized as an effective means to crack open our closed hearts, not just because of what that means about death and dying and everything, but because that's the key to wisdom, peace, and joy. As long as that heart is closed and we preserve its stopped upness, then wisdom, peace, and joy are inaccessible to us. Even if we're able to open our hearts just a little bit, a little tiny bit, the resulting wisdom is transformative. And the Midrash, the rabbi's teaching promises this. This is what the Midrash says, God speaking, open for me an opening of returning as big as the sharp tip of a needle 
and I will open for you an opening that even wagons and carriages can enter into. What we're being called to do is open a tiny hole. Do that to ourselves, become a little more open. And the process where the other side gets involved is to open that, well, the term that the Midrash uses is Chuda Shel Machat. And that, if you look at translations of that, very often the English version will be eye of the needle. You open a hole the size of the eye of the needle. It doesn't actually mean that. Chuda shel machat, machat means needle. Chuda means pinprick. It's the other end of the needle. It's so small. The, the eye of the needle is relatively large compared to the sharp point end. If we open ourselves that much, a pinprick, then the Midrash tells us that God comes into the picture and the Muslim teachers assure us that we will be on the way to open-hearted living just through that action. And Bev has a story that really speaks to this theme. Am I live? Okay. Um, I, I just thought of this story last night, actually, I recalled it. Um, this is a patient who was an artist and she chose to die at her remote oceanside, beautiful country property with her husband and close community staying with her. Her friends built her coffin from fallen cedar planks that they milled to her specifications. A couple of weeks before her death, the coffin was complete and she asked to be helped into it in order to experience the feeling of being inside her coffin. She wanted the top put on, not nailed, but the top put on. Then we all stood around quietly, feeling her willingness to accept the reality of her imminent death cracked something open in our hearts as well. It's a, an experience I'll never forget. So the primary Musser teaching in focus here, which I would say is Jewish spiritual teaching in focus here, is that imagining your own death getting close up in sensory with death, that's Kate getting into her own coffin, or the death of other living creatures like that uh, fish that I described, or any other way of bringing the reality of death into consciousness, it transforms life. If our ordinary condition is one of timtum halev, an insensitive blockaded heart, then recalling death can be a blade that can slice in and open the heart, even if just a little, but it starts the process of inner growth. And let's be clear that we're not talking here about a morbid preoccupation with death. There's no room here for despair or feelings that death uh, uh, removes from life a sense of meaningfulness or purposefulness. Quite the opposite, Rabbi Simcha Zissel Ziv, who was the primary institutionalizer of the Musser movement in the late 19th century, he says, quote, remembering death in the proper way can bring a person to the ultimate joy. Remembering death in the proper way can bring a person to the ultimate joy because of the open heart because it opens our hearts and hearts open can experience joy. And all the stories Bev has shared with us today have been about Tim Tum Halev 
and the spiritual benefits of wisdom, peace, and joy that come from letting death break open those stopped up vessels. And we get one final story to underline the point. I was following a patient at home, a professor of law at the University of British Columbia called UBC. The decision was made by him and his family that he preferred to die in the palliative care unit at the hospital. He was transferred there and I was visiting him the next day. His wife greeted me at the door and was very upset because he had become restless a few hours before and was continuously saying, ubc.ca, 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 restlessly in bed. That was the ending of his university email address. He did seem very distraught. So I sat for a few minutes beside him and then said, David, all your messages have been sent and they've all been received. There's nothing left to be communicated. He settled immediately and then began to say repeatedly, wonderful, wonderful. Thank you, thank you, wonderful, wonderful. Thank you, thank you. And then he took in a breath, exhaled and died. So my wish in having the privilege to close and open up for questions for Alan or me is that by acknowledging and remembering the truth that we and all that we love will die Rather than this being a morbid thought, may it be what helps to open our hearts to live all our days with wonderful, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. So the, the floor is open. There are 38 of us. It includes Bev, me, and Pam. So that means 35 participants. I think that's okay if you, um, oh, I see someone's got their hand up. If you know how to put your hand up, that would be good. So I'm going to call on Mona first to unmute. And then if you put your hand up, my God, I just looking at gallery view for the first time and I'm seeing so many dear friends. That's so sweet. So nice to see you. And those of you who are not yet dear friends, I'm looking forward to that. But uh, Mona, please. So um, I want to thank you for this wonderful, beautiful, gentle presentation. You both addressed the process of dying spiritually and being in the process and also living spiritually with the awareness of death. I wanted to just say a couple things. Um, one is um, I went to Wellesley College and our, at our 15th reunion a long time ago, one of our colleagues, one of our peers was um, got up and said, um, I've been diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer and I'm dying. And I wanna invite you all to put yourselves in my position and live your life backward from this moment. Hmm. And it was such a gift to us, right? And she wasn't saying it in misery. She was actually saying, there's an amazing awareness you can have of your own mortality. And I invite you not to wait till you're dying, but you could actually do it now. So that's one. Second is, um, uh, I don't know if you know Rachel Atun's work in Israel with Chaveirut. But you, the two of you should probably get to know her because she trains um, doctors, social workers, pastors who are working in Israel with dying patients and their families. 
to bring Jewish spirituality into the uh, into the, the the conversation. And she trains people at Hadassah Hospital and all over the country. It's amazing work, so that that we can really make this process much more spiritual. And the last thing I want to say is that um, um, a, a friend of mine who was at her mother's death and I was at my parents' death. Um, described herself as a midwife to her mother's passing, mm -hmm. which I just loved. And mm -hmm. the truth is, it takes as much of a village to help someone die as it takes to help someone be born and, and grow. Um, so I, I just, and, I, that, and so many of your stories were just so moving. I, I want to thank you because that double, that double process of living with the knowledge of death and dying with peace is so important. It's really beautiful. Thank you, Mona. Can you put the name of the person in Israel into the chat so I can get the correct spelling? That would be very helpful. Bev has a concept which he teaches about double vision, which is a whole other subject. But there is a reality here of having two perspectives at the same moment on living and dying, allowing the perspective of death to come into the perspective of living without overwhelming it. Um, there's a, a man with his hand up who should unmute, whose name is not Chalice Christian Church. <laughs> My name's Vernon Meyer. Okay. Uh, and I'm not sure why that came up that way. That's uh, maybe my Zoom account must be there. So uh, thank, thank, thank you very much. Um, I teach a class uh, for nurses. And right now this week, we're actually on uh, experience of death and dying. And I told them that I would be attending this because I felt it was really uh, important. And, and the one thing listening to you, I've not, I'm not familiar with, uh, with Musar and, and that, but, uh, but Dr. Bev, I, I just really appreciate what you say, but here's, here's a question almost to the person, especially after two years of the pandemic and so many of the nurses had to sit in rooms where there were no families, where they were the only contact uh, with the dying person. And almost to a person, they say the only way that they are now able to deal with death is to detach from the experience of the dying person, uh, that they have to put a barrier up uh, because it's just so emotionally overwhelming for them. And I wonder if that's, is that like, because I go, I don't know if that's good. That can't possibly be good that you detach from it and that you just go about your, your nursing uh, business without that sense. And that one story, Bev, that you told about uh, the, the nurse being hesitant, that was, that's, that's the experience of so many of the nurses that I work with and how the family embraced uh, her. Um, any suggestion on how to, to address that issue of detachment, which is their re emotional response to not allowing being overwhelmed by the experience of death. I, I think it's, um, it's probably a myth to think that by um, separating us somehow that we won't feel the pain as much. I think it's actually, the irony is that that's the opposite. And as Alan was referencing my, my theory about double vision, which is that you are in that room in a terrible situation, maybe in an ICU room 
where you can't in you know, all geared up and you know, PPE'd up and the patient is non-responsive, that that is, you see that situation and you experience it. That's the truth of that situation. But there's another reality, the deeper reality of that person as soul and you as soul and that you are connecting from a place of love, not from a place of nurse, patient, dying, living, but from a place of love. And I think when you connect that way, that it feeds you. Of course, you're exhausted and you have to go out and look at the sky and, you know, and, and feed yourself uh, in, in the ways that are important to you. But I think for me, that's the, the distinction that the truth of the experience is the love and the connection, not the, the horror of what's happening to that person because something deeper is also happening. I'll just add one thing, you know, I don't know very much about the health healthcare world. I'm not involved in that directly, but I seldom let that kind of thing stop me from having an opinion. But the, um, it takes more energy sometimes to resist the feelings than it does to go with them and take the benefit of participating in them. I find that in the grief process in general, you, we've all experienced grief. If we resist it, it's an exhausting, debilitating experience. If we ride the waves of the grief, that energy that comes in the waves actually carries us forward. And so I think that whole idea of resisting the experience is understandable, but it's a piece of work to get over. Steve, how nice to see you. Unmute yourself. Uh, yes, good to see you too, Alan. I was just going to say that one of the things that a lot of people are concerned about uh, with death is what's going to happen to my spouse, to my family when I'm gone. And if you stop to think about it for a minute, particularly from a Musar perspective, uh, humility, um, honoring the ability of those we leave behind to be able to survive without us. Um, of course, we're gonna be missed, hopefully, but in general, people can get along on their own. Uh, and I, I think that's kind of a concern that people should put aside. Mm -hmm. I have a little story on that. When my mother passed away, no, sorry, when my father passed away, uh, my mother and my father were both 83 years old. And my mother had been a woman of her generation, which was, she was a, a homemaker, but she was even more dependent than typical because she didn't drive and she didn't have a bank account. My father took care of all the finances. And now she was an 83 year old woman living in a senior's home having been dependent my and that was the that was what happened so that was when she was 83 by the time she was 86 she was the treasurer of her floor of the home she took the checkbook at 80 83 learned how to reconcile the balance learned how to do checks learned all that and then got so good at it that they made her the treasurer of her floor of the home life goes on Life goes on. And I think we, we do have the responsibility to be as um, responsible as we can be, 
there's a concept in in Musar, some of you will be familiar with the balance between hishtadlut, which is the effort we make, and bitachon, which is trusting God. We're required to make the effort, but we can only go so far. Beyond that, we have to trust. I I, I was about to say that, but and also that um, it's part of our culture that I described of having to be in control of things. Uh, okay, Ronald has his hand up. That was a perfect segue uh, to my question and comment. Thank you both for uh, focusing on this uh, important issue. Um, I'm a retired uh, pediatrician uh, and have gotten interested in um, end-of-life issues, and in particular, tying to this concept you just mentioned, Bev, about um, more and more people wanting to feel in control uh, surrounding the ending of their lives um, and providing those wonderful stories and ways in which you can do that. One of the issues I've been involved with is this notion that for some of us, um, the option to take a medication when time was short seems an attractive option. Historically, Judaism has, in choosing life, been interpreted as one shall not do anything to hasten one's death. And yet that flies in the face of many of the advances in end-of-life care in recent years. I'd be interested in your perspectives, both of you, around this idea of uh, if your life is terminal, uh, you have less than six months to live, uh, the course is, uh, is definable, um, that in order to end your suffering, you request from your physician a prescription in those places where it's legal to do so, one of which is Canada, of course. Bev, this is an easy question. You take it. I think I'm frozen, am I? No. no. Oh, okay. Um, this, this is a very personal choice, so I'm not going to comment on the rightness or wrongness of that choice. I would just say that my, my sense of things, first of all, from my work with, with patients and families, is that extraordinary things happen when we don't control. I mean, that, that ending, choosing when to end your life is another example of looking for certainty and control over everything. Um, this is what life and birth and death are the two things that up until very recently we had no control over. So um, my own feeling is that having witnessed these transformations, Gordon, for example, the one who was excellent in everything he did and then found peacefulness at the end, would probably, if he was alive now, have chosen assisted death, 100%. But what he did experience because he had to let go of that control at the end was uh, this transformation that opened his heart in a way that he didn't even know the words for. So, um, so I think my, my, from my experience, I see that there are amazing opportunities. That doesn't mean that some people are suffering beyond what is bearable and that for them, they make the choice to end their life. What I see is that um, I haven't experienced a death that felt like it was a torturous, horrible experience. I haven't been in the ICU with people dying of COVID. Um, so I can't say what that's like, but I, I feel like the, there's an arrogance in our culture of thinking that we know everything 
And there are just some things that are beyond our knowing. Um, I'm just going to give one additional comment and then I think we can, well, I see Jill has her hand up. So we'll take that one last question or comment. Um, one thing Bev didn't mention in her presentation, but as I have been the sort of witness and uh, a, a company or as she's gone through you know, 25 years of being uh, working in this field is that it's not uncommon for me to hear someone say through her that since they had a terminal diagnosis it has been the best part of their life that once they accepted that death was inevitable something came into their life that was unlike any other previous period in their life and in terms of what we've been talking about that that doesn't seem a contradiction at all it seems to be another way of framing what bev just said and i think of it in terms of that tim tum halev the bev said it so truly that the the decision about how to live and how to die is entirely personal and we're not here to comment on that our perspective is that there are gifts that come from the dying process and Bev's example of the man who his control process was so strong that he could miss those gifts you know and it raises the question what are we here for what's the soul here for what's life for and certainly from the Musa perspective we're here to grow we're here to grow in that kind of wisdom that Kohelet talked about. And the life experiences are available to us and death is a primary one. Rabbi Shlomo Wolbe was a great Musar teacher who died in 2005, that recently. He said that a person should be approaching life with tremendous curiosity because you should be a person who is teaching yourself from life and he said even on the day of death a person should be learning how to die we should be that much alive to the process of living to take full advantage of this wondrous experience of being a human being right through to the the last drop and i think the sometimes it's easier to take many kinds of side exits from the process but if we're supposed to choose life, this is part of what we choose to engage with and grow with and grow into. So Jill, you're, you get the last word. Oh, thank you. Um, I just, uh, I have two parents that are in their nineties, thank God. And uh, you know, they could go on for quite some time still or not. And I'm looking for some help to create or assist in creating an atmosphere where they can relax into rather than resist, um, you know, in the way that we've been discussing so far. So um, if you have any resources or, or suggestions in that regard to creating an atmosphere in the house that in, in enables that and, and encourages uh, living with death and and also um, resources of understanding about death, life after death and all that <clears throat> kind of thing from a Jewish perspective. I guess really the, the only thing to say is that you um, 
you quiet yourself and listen into what's happening with your mom and with the environment so that you're listening with that double vision. You see the situation, you see your parents getting older, more fragile, and then you look deeper to that place of their soul, their beauty, your relationship with them, the preciousness of that. And then you respond from that place, not from the, I mean, I see so many times in a, in a hospital room with the busyness of family. Oh, you look cold. I'll get you a blanket. Oh, should we move the flowers? Like all this stuff that is keeping them from really being separated, separating them from the real experience of being together. So less doing and more being, and then the answers will arise of what to do and how to do it. I'll just add one small thing, just re referencing one of the sources that I brought today, and Pam has made available the source sheet. So all, everything that was quoted from traditional sources or Musa sources is available on the one sheet, so you'll have access to that. It was Rabbi Dessler who talked about what, do, what does it take to open the heart? And he talked about strong emotion and and he said you know it can be positive or negative but i think in the situation you're describing jill it strikes me just in line with what bev's saying the more you can get in touch with your own ability to love the stronger the love in the household is and you're the and you're you can be the engine of that that that's the kind that would fit into rabbi dessler's description of what it is that causes the heart to open and that open heart is the is the core of every story bev told us and that comes about through a transformative experience or some trigger to that maybe only that it may only take the the pin the sharp end of a needle point only that big but it comes from you to introduce that emotional lever into the situation and my intuition from what you said um, was that that emotion may be love. Well, I wanna thank you both for this extremely meaningful um, class today. I think I can speak on behalf of all those attended and those who might watch this again in the recording. Um, we also wanna thank our partners again, Mount Sinai Cemetery. And if you're interested for those who are here, we have another program tomorrow at 11 a.m. Also next Monday and Tuesday at 1 p.m. PT. You can find all of this from validatemadrash.org. And again, thank you so much, Alan and Bev. This was, this was exceptional. Take care, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.